Hello, and welcome to the Needs Improvement Podcast, your regular deep dive into reimagining mental health and well-being in the workplace. I'm your host, Nicholas Whitaker, coach and co-founder of the Changing Work Collective. In every episode, we sit down with thought leaders in organizational health, as well as individuals who've navigated the complexities of mental health, well-being, and belonging in the workplace. Our goal? To dismantle the stigma surrounding mental health, ignite meaningful dialogue, and inspire both employees and leaders to revolutionize the way performance is gauged at work. So if you're eyeing a healthier, happier chapter in your professional life, you're in the right place. Together, let's transform the places we work into the places we would love to be. Let's dive into what needs improvement. All right. Well, hi, folks, and welcome back to the Needs Improvement Podcast. I'm here with our next guest, Ennis Olson. Uh, and Ennis, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, thanks for having me. Professionally, I lead an innovation function at Google. I mean, I've worked in product and innovation for most of my career for the past 20 years, dabbled a little bit in food industry early on, and that's a lot of what I do now. But during that time, I also worked in financial services. Um, and I've also been an entrepreneur um, and have launched several products of my own and had a few businesses uh, over the years as well. And on the, the personal side, I have spent a lot of the recent years focused on mental health, particularly um, how it supports people at work or doesn't. In that context, uh, I also am on the board of a local nonprofit in San Francisco called the Access Institute, which uh, aims for providing high quality mental health services to the community. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, first of all, thanks for being here and thanks for sharing your story. Uh, it sounds like you got a lot going on and uh, I always like what I like to call multi-hyphenates, people that have a lot of different uh, things that are happening at the same time. Like what kind of got you into the line of work that you're in right now and like how has that evolved over time? Um, I found myself drawn or I, in general, both personally and professionally, I'm just drawn to learning and solving problems. And I found myself early in my career uh, being the one who always raised their hand to solve the big, messy problems others were avoiding. And fairly quickly, within two years of starting my career, I ended up in early innovation roles where I was getting to work on really complex problems that hadn't been solved. Um, and often uh, on technologies that were early enough, we weren't sure how they were going to work or how to make them. And over the years, that grew into the kind of work that I do now. That's really, really cool. And and then, so you mentioned that you kind of uh, are passionate about mental health and mental health awareness. And this is kind of something that you're, you're doing a lot of work in the space. And like, how did, how did that come about? And like, wh- how long have you been on that journey? Uh, I think I've been on that journey my whole life. <laughs> so it's very personal. Um, mental health, my own mental health has been something that I've struggled with um, through most of my life. There's been periods where it's not an issue. And there are other periods where it dominates kind of every day and every moment. Um, and really what changed for me uh, was about six, seven years ago, I realized the place that it impacted me most was really in work and mm-hmm. how it showed up in the workplace. And so while I had volunteered and donated and you know done fundraising for a number of different organizations, I realized I really wanted to consolidate my effort towards mental health and ensuring mm-hmm. that people had access to high quality mental health. Um, and that comes a lot from realizing that I chose to go to therapy the first time in my mid twenties. And at that point, no one in my family had done that. And I've seen mm-hmm. what happens when you avoid getting mental health support from professionals. 
Um, and so having my own experience and seeing how beneficial it's been, realizing how important that has been to me, then became more of the focus on, I want to make sure that I'm using my time and money where I can to support others getting that access. Oh, that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. And you're so right. You know, I think so many people don't have access to the types of mental health support that they need. And particularly in the workplace, I think this is an interesting thing that, and the whole reason actually why I started this podcast in the first place was kind of to talk a little bit about the gaps that exist within the modern workplace. You know, we have EAP services uh, that are often offered to us within corporations. We'll have like mental health days and things like that. But in my opinion, that's never quite enough. I'm kind of curious, like your thoughts on like what the current landscape is uh, of available services and, and uh, options for people who might be struggling with mental health in the workplace. Yeah. You know, I love that you mentioned EAP services. I, they're necessary. I'm so glad that at least in many parts of the U S that is a common offering from a corporation. Um, and at the same time, I feel that it's the bare minimum because it really says, we have these services, you're on your own, figure it out. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's how I got to therapy the first time. I had a particularly crisis moment one morning on the way to the office, had nothing to do with work specifically. It was just, it culminated. And I realized as I was getting to the office that I was truly at a crisis breaking point. And I didn't know where to start because I'd never been to therapy. So I actually looked up EAP services at work and found out that one of the therapists that that program at the time covered happened to be a couple blocks from my apartment. And mm -hmm. that started my journey of mental health because I found somebody right there. So wow. I think it's critical that we have those services. At the same time, I think we have so much more understanding of mental health, the breadth of what that means, and the fact that there's even a spectrum of severity. And that includes things then like normal stress and anxiety that we all experience can impact our mental health. That's a part of every day. And that may not require therapy. At the same time, people still need support. Mm -hmm. And so we've gotten better about offering services, often peer-to-peer -peer services um, in companies where you go through maybe a training and then you have like an email signature or a sign at your cubicle or, or whatever to let people know that you're available and uh, can support them. Um, but I think there's still so much more we could be doing. And I think some of it starts with understanding that mental health is a very broad spectrum. And then beyond just the spectrum of mental health are all the different causes and certain moments in life require a different kind of support and help. And just calling it all mental health kind of covers over that. Ah, yeah. The nuance, I think, is like something really fascinating to me, you know, in terms of like so many different people that I talk to. It, a lot of times the, 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 the conversation is about some sort of crisis moment or some sort of like event that occurred that then finally drove them to get support. But then I also talk to all of these other folks that are struggling under the pressures of burnout and overwhelm and anxiety and imposter syndrome and all these other things that, at least in the environment that I was in and big tech is just kind of like considered like part of the culture and kind of like part of the, the package is, you know, maybe what you get paid so well for is to deal with that as hazard pay, I suppose. And I love what you kind of mentioned in terms of like the spectrum of like different, different types of care, or different needs along the way. I've, I've had experiences where we had mental health discussion groups at work. I've had experiences where I spoke to like a trained listener or I myself ended up becoming a trained listener myself and would host some of these mental health discussion groups. And I know for that, for me, 
as a, as a male in America, the stigma around mental health is, is pretty high. And just even being able to say, like, I'm struggling uh, was something that just felt like way out of the norm uh, for me. And I'm kind of curious, like mm. your experience, you know, having been part of these different types of groups and, you know, programs and offerings, like, is that kind of your experience as well? Or ha- have you seen like that shift over time? Um, it has been my experience and I have seen a shift over time. Um, I don't think, hmm, I don't even think I questioned whether I could talk about mental health early in my career. I just mm-hmm. didn't bring it up at yeah. work. It was not a topic um, of conversation. And I even distinctly remember a person I worked with um, very early on who openly talked about it. And I also heard how everyone talked about that person when they weren't around as a result, mm-hmm. commenting on all the things that they mentioned about their struggle mm-hmm. with mental health. And it reinforced to me, well, this is not okay. Like I can't talk about this. At the same time, that all predated me hitting my own crisis point. And once I started going to therapy, I very quickly saw how it was helping me survive. It kept me from feeling in crisis every day. And I, I saw that within, you know, just the first couple of visits within the matter of a week. And soon started to talk about it more openly with people I trusted, even in the workplace. Um, But I also talk about it, I think, more authentically now than I did early on, because there's more safety. So, you know, I may not have mentioned the struggle itself, or just exactly how deep I was feeling like a sense of struggle. But I might talk about anxiety, for example. And over the years, I've been fortunate to work in environments and with other peers and leaders who are modeling and open to having more conversation. And so that's made it easier than to talk more openly about it. Yeah. And I think that's such an important point that you're making as well. It's like, I felt more comfortable personally talking about my own mental health struggles when a leader who I reported to actually took me aside one day and he was like, look, I can tell that you're struggling. I've dealt with anxiety a lot myself. I've had panic attacks. Here's how I've managed that. Is there anything that I can do to help support you to get the right resources? And it initially, when he said that to me, I felt like a giant spotlight had been shown on me. And it Mm -hmm. it was like this freeze moment where I was just like, oh my God, I've been caught. You know, I've been found out somehow. But very quickly, that kind of dissipated. And I realized like this was like a genuine expression of care and connection. But, you know, that was one person in like a 25 year history of work that had ever reached out and offered support like that. And I, and I wonder like in, in your opinion, is there, are, are there, is there training that needs to happen? Is there, you know, what, what, what do we need to do to help leaders and managers and, and just even non-official leaders feel a little bit more comfortable about talking about these things and opening the conversation up? Well, first, I'm so glad that you had that experience. That's incredible yeah. to have somebody who can, recognize, take the the step of even reaching out and saying, Hey, I'm observing something. Here's my own experience. Is this of help to you? Like, is this something that's going on for you? Um, I think that's truly the best way to do it. I think when you see, uh, you know, it's well-being week at the office, you're like, okay, great. There's now timed events for me to, you know, work on my well-being. And it, it's all well-intended and it might even be helpful for some, but I don't know that it's the most helpful when it comes to actual change or action. I also think we expect quite a lot of modern leaders. We're in many ways asking them to show up and be a lot of different 
people and one person's life beyond just leader. And so I also think we have to balance some of this to say, like, we can't expect every leader to be a therapist any more than we can expect them to be an expert on any number of things or play any number of roles outside of the job they're there to do and lead and the team. And yet I think we can use some training and tools to at least make those conversations easier or find more human ways of providing support. I think in, you can, similar to the experience you just shared, just having a leader say, you don't seem yourself. Do you want to take some time off? Like take a week off. Like the projects are fine. Is there anything I can take off your plate? Would that help? Like those are ways of showing care. It doesn't have to be a conversation about mental health. It's just a recognition of, hey, maybe you need some support here. What can I do to help? And and that can even start um, a lot of great conversation. Yeah. And that to me just sounds like the very basic level of like compassion and empathy, you know, just being able to realize that the the report or the person that you're working with is a human being and then might, they might need some support and having the, the willingness to reach out and to offer uh, a lending hand in some kind of a way. Yeah. And I'm kind of curious, like, you know, you mentioned a little bit about accessibility and just like, you had a lucky experience where your therapist was just a couple blocks down the road from you and you had the wherewithal to even reach out and ask for help. And I'm, I'm kind of curious, like, and maybe this is a difficult question to answer, you know, concretely, but, you know, so many people don't have that, you know, they don't have the ability to just to like walk down the street to their therapist. I know a lot of my friends in California, for example, there's waiting lists to get therapists or get access oh, yeah. to them, or if they need a specialist of some sort that's dealing with trauma or a particular type of neurodiversity, it can be really difficult to find the right type of care. And I'm, I'm kind of curious from your perspective, like, you know, with the work that you're doing to try to build more accessibility and to, to make that more open, you know, what are you, what are you seeing that actually really works? And, you know, where, where, where is the state of play right now in terms of accessibility for mental health more broadly? One of the, I think, single biggest moments of change for access to good quality, like high quality therapy is uh, video chat. Um, you know, pandemic forced everything to go virtual and, I still think there's a lot to be gained by having an in-person visit with a therapist. And I, I personally prefer that when I can uh, with my own therapist. And for so many people, just having someone they can connect with directly from their phone, that alone is a level of access that just hasn't existed before. Um, you know, we, when we think about what all the services are around mental health you know, we tend to think of, oh, I need a therapist, but there's different reasons that you might need your therapist. And you started to touch on a few of them. Um, there's also, you know, the first step is always a consult, right? So there isn't an expectation when you meet a therapist that you have to continue seeing that therapist. You're still looking for someone who's a match for you, right? But you're also there to consult and support and help them find the right things to support you with. So that might mean that you need a consult around, uh, an assessment. Maybe some of what you're struggling with is related to neurodivergence and it's something that's not been diagnosed. Maybe there's something else going on that you're curious about. A lot of the waiting lists are even just for those assessments before you even get to the consultation for care beyond that. And that's where I think accessing some digital tools and platforms that has democratized it and made it more accessible. Now, not everyone knows that that's out there and available, but 
I think that's getting more known as well. Yeah. And tell, maybe just for viewers that uh, might not be familiar with kind of the assessment process, like what does that even look like? Is it kind of like a matchmaking kind of a situation where they do an, like a, an analysis and kind of get an idea of like what you're struggling with and try to pair you up with other folks or like what, what does that even kind of look like in practice? Yeah. So, you know, just to speak for my own experience, I initially through the EAP resources found a local therapist. I saw that therapist for many years and then I hit a point where I didn't feel the work and the focus that I needed was best suited for that therapist. I was looking for someone who had some other life experience that I felt reflected my own so that I felt it was directly applicable. Um, And that therapist, I, I had a very honest conversation with that therapist who helped me find the therapist I see now. Um, and it was someone who shared a lot of similar life experiences for myself being uh, a queer man growing up in a rural uh, part of the U.S. That was a lot of my early therapy. In the last couple of years um, during the pandemic, I started to realize I was struggling quite a bit more remotely than I thought my peers were. And I didn't really understand why. And through kind of an offhand comment that I made a joke uh, with my husband, he, you know, I joked about ADHD, which I had not been diagnosed with. And he said, well, I think that's exactly what it is. And that led me on a journey of now seeking out someone to assess for that. Now my therapist could do that assessment, but I actually wanted to speak to somebody else around that assessment just to have someone who didn't know me assess that. Mm. And so I, I worked with them to find somebody who was accepting uh, new patients for assessment. And it was in the course of working with that um, psychiatrist that I was not only diagnosed with ADHD, but later diagnosed with something I had suspected for many years, but had been frankly too afraid to seek out, which is autism. Mm. And so Mm. that assessment process required me to find somebody who was skilled in doing that assessment. And there are significant waiting lists for that. And it actually took me calling friends who are medical professionals to connect me into finding somebody who was taking new patients. I I tried online. I tried through EAP resources again. I tried through my existing therapist. um, And it wasn't through, uh, it wasn't until a number of conversations that I could find somebody. Now, those conversations all happened in like less than 10 days. So I was very fortunate. That is not the case for most people right now. And that's the challenge. Yeah. Well, first of all, just thank you for sharing that. I'm sorry that that was like your your experience that it took that long to kind of get the support that you need. Um, even though I guess like 10 days in the grand scheme of things isn't as bad as a lot of people deal with, but that's got to be pretty painful just kind of waiting for like answers and waiting for like support uh, to kind of come through. You know, you, you mentioned kind of before we hopped on the call, like, you know, when you got this diagnosis, you know, it sounds like that might've changed things for you a little bit. I'm kind of curious, like your experience of that. It it sounds like there was a little trepidation around the diagnosis of uh, autism. I'm kind of curious your thoughts on, on what the the concern there was or what the story was that you were telling yourself about that diagnosis. And then once you did get the diagnosis, like how did that change your experience both at work, but also just more generally speaking? Yeah. You know, being diagnosed um, with ADHD and autism, each one um, had a different motivation for me to understand and also had a different, I had a different reaction to both. Um, with ADHD, I had actually never really considered it. It, mm-hmm. it wasn't something that I had thought about 
autism I'd actually been thinking about for a decade. And there's more and more stories that, you know, whether it's documentaries or TV shows with autistic characters, there, there was more of this that's been happening in the last 10 years. And that's where I started to find myself reflected in other places, at least what mm-hmm. it felt like it was reflecting my experience. But at the same time, these characters, even if they're a main character in a TV show, it always revolves around the deficits and the challenges they have. And so it still has stigma associated to it. I also was worried that I wouldn't be diagnosed as autistic and that then all of this collection of behaviors of experience that I had didn't have something behind it, that I was just weird. Like Mm -hmm. it came down to just feeling a lot of self-judgment for like, what if I'm not autistic? I'm just odd because that would carry its own additional mental health, you know, impact with ADHD um, having not considered it until what started as a joking conversation with my husband and then reading some of what the experience of adults with ADHD were versus the stereotypes I had in my head of like the 10 year old boy who won't sit still in class and thinking about, you know, the kids in school that I knew had this cause it was talked about. And sure enough that that fit the stereotype and I wasn't that kid. So I'm like, this was new information. And so it actually came with a sense of relief and a sense of feeling like, oh, wow, actually, there's a lot of these things that do fit my life experience. But I also have a, a type of ADHD called combined type, where I have a mix of both hyperactivity and inattentiveness. Mm-hmm. What I tend to struggle with is the inattentive side of things, not the hyperactivity. And so not even knowing that part existed the diagnosis helped me understand myself and it actually transformed my relationship to therapy and mental health. And it started with ADHD because the inattentiveness of ADHD often manifests in ways of like, it's difficult to get started on a task. And for me at work, as someone who is, you know, self-described type A overachiever, not being able to start and focus on something is I spent most of my career hiding it's I've had this throughout my life and I've, you know, much to my parents' frustration, I was the kid doing the school project at 10 o'clock the night before. And we still had to run to the store to get extra glue to make sure it was all going to work. Like I would do that. And they're like, how do you do this and still get A's? I'm like, mm-hmm. well, because I knew what I was doing. I just couldn't get started for the two weeks that the assignment had been, you know, assigned. The same was true at work. And I learned really early on how to hide it. And so there was a lot of shame I was carrying at work. Without the diagnosis, a lot of the work I had done in therapy was around self-sabotage. I had coded these experiences as a self-sabotaging moment uh, around my own sense of self-worth. And yet often what I talked about in therapy was, I don't feel like I lack self-worth. I actually worry about others not thinking I know what I'm doing because I have a hard time getting started. ADHD transformed that conversation. It wasn't self-sabotage. It was actually a characteristic of my brain that makes it hard for me to get started. And now I have some tools and techniques that I can use that lessens that impact for me. Autism was a relief to finally have that diagnosis. It was also, and has been a rather emotional process of grieving. Mm -hmm. 
thinking about how different my life would be if I had known earlier, mm. thinking about how differently I'd navigate my career if I had understood why I'd had certain challenges at certain points in my career related to, oh yeah, I'm actually, my brain is not working like all of the people I'm working with. Um, and that, you know, particularly with autism, there's a lot of challenge in building relationships or maintaining relationships, not for all, but it is a common experience for people on the spectrum. That is how it shows up most for me in the professional setting. And so, you know, finding that out, learning more about that experience that other people on spectrum have had around professional relationships and where it plays out. I saw myself immediately reflected in it. And then I thought about all the different things that could have been different in the last 20 plus years of my career. And that's informed a lot of how I think about my career now of the last couple of years with this information certainly do not have answers. And some days are harder than others, but I at least now have a sense of why a situation might be more challenging. And that allows me to then think, okay, what resources do I have to navigate this now? Mm. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And, and I, I would imagine that so many of the folks that would be listening to this podcast and a lot of the people that I work with as clients, like this is a similar type of experience that they have of like years and years and years of masking or otherwise hiding mm. what's going on within them. Um, I'm kind of curious, like, you know, maybe for folks that might not be conscious of like the masking or conscious of like what that actual process is, like, could, could you share a little bit about what that actually looks like within your workplace? Like what is, what is hiding or masking of those types of behaviors or struggles even look like? Yeah. You know, I've become really aware in the last several months of um, something I've learned to do, which is a masking behavior. I think what, um, unfortunately what the term masking kind of masks in a way is it is the association to masking is that you're covering something, which I think then people might see more as like a dampening or a pushing down or an avoiding. Mm. It's actually masking in any form that covers the underlying thing you don't want somebody to know. And one of the things that I realized is a behavior I learned early in my professional and even personal life in my twenties. And I've stopped masking as much in the last couple of years with this understanding of myself. And I see how it changes the situation and it makes mm -hmm. it hard for me to, to kind of stick to the not masked version, or maybe to say it differently, I can now think about when to mask effectively. It doesn't always have to be a bad thing. And for me, what that is, is enthusiasm. Mm. So much of the stereotype and it, it's, it's for good reason, part of the stereotype for people on spectrum is a flat affectation, not necessarily overly enthusiastic. And some of what, when I had shared with some personal friends um, over the years that I thought I might be autistic, that was usually one of the things they pointed out. I was like, you can't be like, you have such a huge range of emotion and you're always so excited about this. But that's because the stereotype is the flat affectation. That's that's not the everyday, every moment experience. And what I had learned is that if I didn't exhibit more emotion in situations, people thought I was rude. And they would say, like, that is a word that has been said to me directly in the workplace. Um, friends have said this as well, that you're rude, you're being standoffish, you're um, you're being too direct, you're being mm -hmm. too honest. You're not thinking about others. You're lacking empathy. And I'm like, 
I don't feel any of that. I'm thinking about like, I didn't, whatever just came out of my mouth was not a lack of empathy. It was just how I felt. Mm -hmm. Why is it not okay to share that? And so what I learned to do as a masking behavior is to really, uh, over enthusiastically get excited about things like, Oh, that's great. Oh, I'm so excited for this. And would add, you know, five exclamation points to a text to somebody. And, I realized that was all just the masking. Most of the time, I don't really feel that enthusiasm. And it's not that I lack enthusiasm. It's just that effusiveness was a behavior that I learned to do so that I didn't get the commentary and the feedback that I was being rude or standoffish or too direct or too blunt. Um, And at the same time, sometimes you can be too blunt, right? Like there's real feedback there of like, okay, you got to think about the situation. And to the extent that I have that understanding now and have a little more control over this and awareness, now I can choose to mask when it's right for the situation and not mask when I don't need to do that. Yeah. That's a really profound point that I think you're making there too. So it's about the agency or the control that you're able Mm -hmm. to have over the experience. And I know just from my own experience, like I, I probably waited 20 years too long to get diagnosed uh, for some of the things that I was struggling with. And like, once I actually understood like, oh, this is what's been transpiring this whole time. It's not that I'm broken and it's not that like I'm a bad person. It's just that there's certain things that occurred like throughout my life that created conditions that make it difficult for me to relate to the world around me in, in effective ways. Um, and similarly, I was able to kind of moderate or like, uh, adjust the way that I behaved in different situations and also like the way I took care of myself as well. You know, so, you know, I had some pretty bad social anxiety and I had some pretty bad uh, PTSD experiences where like, if I would get into a group of people of more than five or six people, I would get really twitchy and uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And what I learned as maybe like a coping strategy early on, and then later I found out that it was actually a very healthy coping strategy is I would excuse myself quite a bit. You know, so mm-hmm. I would like dip out and go spend some time in a bathroom stall and just like regulate mm-hmm. my nervous system a little bit to the point where I could then go back out and like be part of a meeting, for example. There was a lot of shame around that for years and years, though, because I felt that I was going and hiding and just not being able to cope. As soon yeah. as I got the diagnosis and as soon as I started getting some care, then it was like, now I knew what the triggers were. I knew what the types of behaviors were that I could expect. And I knew like what the poor coping mechanisms might've been that I might've reached for in the past. And now I had a handful of other tools in the toolbox that I could reach for, uh, to be able to really effectively manage those types of conditions. And I kind of, I'm curious from your perspective, uh, and it's like, you know, if you were, if you're going to give advice to somebody that was kind of experiencing challenges that maybe they don't have a, a definition for, or they don't really know how to pinpoint, I mean, aside from just trying to go seek therapy, you know, like what would be some things of, that you would recommend that people think about or approaches to kind of like move themselves into a place where they might be able to get support a little bit more effectively? You know, I think um, there's a lot of debate around diagnosis itself. And the fact, and part of that recognizing that being diagnosed means you've had access and that itself is a privilege for many people. And so I actually want to start by saying, I, I think we know ourselves better than a lot of modern society allows us to recognize. Mm-hmm. So if you feel something is true about yourself, there's no harm in you believing that. And obviously thinking about more 
of a positive framing here, not the, the negative thoughts. But if you feel that you're struggling with something and it might be autism or ADHD or or some other, you know, mental health um, illness, or or you need support, trust yourself with that, and you have to decide for yourself: Do I need diagnosis? Like, is this something that diagnosis is going to help me with? Um, if that's if that's you know what you're thinking, if on the other hand you're struggling and you don't know how to support yourself, then I would say that's when you need to seek help, mm-hmm. and you know, using as many tools as you can. And some of that starts with finding people you trust and saying, Hey, do you know a good therapist? I know that's a hard question for people maybe to ask, but I think if you can do that with someone in the safety of a a friendship or a family member, then there's a place for you to even ask that where that might be an option. Um, I think that, you know, when you realize, okay, I need support with this. I'm experiencing something and I'm not sure what to do with it asking yourself, what is it that you want to do with it, right? Not all of the characteristics of say autism or ADHD are negative. There's Mm -hmm. actually quite a lot of positive benefits to them. There are elements of what we experience with our mental health, even when we're experiencing, you know, more depression, let's say that's all a part of a mechanism of our brain to protect us. So there's good in all of it. And you have to figure out what it is you really want from your recognition of it. So you starting there and saying, is this something that I think might be diagnosable or is this something that I just don't know how to handle and I need support? And so deciding on that first is a good way to position kind of frame in your mind. What, what is it that I should really be looking for when you've made the determination of what that piece of it is, then it becomes a little clearer about who to go for, for that support. Am I looking for a therapist because I need some strategies to deal with some struggle around, say, stress or anxiety right now? Or maybe I'm going through grief that I wasn't really clear I was going through from uh, you know, a, a loved one passing versus, oh, I'm a, I, I think that there's something about the way my brain works and I need a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, you know, and I wonder too, I often think about this for myself. Like, is there something that I would have offered the younger version of myself that was like aware that something was off and not working, but was still incredibly hesitant and actually doubled down on the mechanisms of hiding or masking those behaviors. Like, is there something that you would share to your younger self uh, that might encourage him to get support earlier or anything along those lines that you might offer? Um, You know, it's funny. I, I spent maybe the first year, particularly with the autism diagnosis, asking whether or not I wish I had known when I was younger. Mm. I certainly had moments where I felt like it would have helped. I also think, you know, being in my mid forties now, finding this out as a child would have been the eighties. I don't know that it would have been for good. I think Mm. in the community, the small community I grew up in, I wouldn't have had the right access to support and wouldn't have been necessarily positive support. So in some ways, I think I found out at the best point in life when I knew how I could handle it. Um, I don't know that much sooner I would have known what to do with it. On the other hand, I think most of what I struggled with when I was younger was all related. And it had a lot to do with um, the sense of belonging. I, I went out of my way 
to find ways to belong to various different groups of individuals and, and people, whether that was music and art, which is where I spent a lot of time um, growing up, or whether it was, um, you know, academic clubs that I would join uh, in high school and college. I was constantly looking for essentially that tribe where I felt like I belonged. I think I spent so much time though trying to belong that I didn't really give myself the opportunity to belong. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's probably the advice I would give to my younger self is spend less time looking for the belonging and try more actively. What does it feel like in these moments? Do I feel like I belong? Um, Mm -hmm. Because I think for me in particular, there were a number of those places where I did belong. I just don't think I allowed myself to experience it enough. And so I floated amongst a lot of different groups and spent a lot of my time until my mid twenties, um, feeling like I just didn't really belong anywhere. Mm, gosh, that really, really, really resonates. Yeah. You know, and honestly, that's part of, I think what I would have offered myself as well is like, there was a lot of trying involved. Mm-hmm. There was just a yeah. lot of efforting and a lot of trying, and, you know, you, you mentioned this idea of belonging and I think this is like such an important thing. And maybe there's like two directions that I'd like to kind of like explore with this. I'm kind of curious your experience of the sense of belonging as part of a community of other neurodiverse folks. Like, is that something that you feel like a sense of kinship with or belonging to at this stage in your life? Um, Yes and no. It's a little bit of both. And I say that because, um, you know, let me me use an example. Another part of a community that I both fit in and don't always feel necessarily a part of, which is being queer. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we think of LGBTQ um, plus there's some other letters that others add as well in there. And in many, in many conversations, people say, okay, but the, each of these different letters is not, it's like the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. So within that, um, what is, is there really uh, say a gay community in the global sense outside of say a local community of gay people who know each other. And I, Mm -hmm. I think like, that's where I feel a part of, a queer community of people both around me in my friendships and generally in the place that I live. And the broader you go with that, maybe the less so that that's actually true because in any sense, there's just a lot of people um, experiencing different things. The same has been true for me with autism and ADHD and neurodivergence. When I meet others who are open about having ADHD or autism and we get to talk about our experience I feel so incredibly at home. Mm. There is a level of understanding and especially with uh, ADHD, an ability to talk over each other and communicate in a way that I just can't communicate with other people, Mm. not because others can't do it, but because neurotypical people are so quick to say, well, you're talking too fast, or I don't understand what you're talking about. Like, can you just calm down? You're being too loud. All these other things around them that I just don't have to worry about when I'm talking to somebody else who's, you know, on spectrum or, or also with ADHD. So I have a tendency to feel a sense of belonging in those moments that I don't feel outside of those moments. But I also think everyone's experience, I mean, these are spectrums and as a result, it shows up for everyone very differently. So not everyone who's on spectrum or has ADHD is going to have the same experience. But when I do meet people who have that same experience, it truly feels like some of the most like comforting moments. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, I'm kind of curious too, like, you know, in this other direction, the sense of belonging, you know, within the workplace itself, you know, there's this need, I feel like, for that some so many people have to feel like they fit in, that they belong within like a corporate space or within a business environment. And then when you throw in neurodiversity or you throw in mental health uh, struggles or anything along those lines that are outside of that normative expected types of behavior or ways of being, suddenly it creates this othering. And I'm kind of curious in your experience, either on a personal level or just what you've seen more generally speaking, like how does this play into like the intersectionality when it comes to mental health, neurodiversity, being in the workplace, being queer, all these things together, like that must, that must be complicated in terms of sense of belonging. It's yeah, it's quite complicated. Um, One of the things that I've been told by family teachers, uh, people I've worked with leaders that I've, you know, worked for my whole life is you're so smart. Mm. And the thing is, I, I started to be able to articulate, I'd always actually not appreciated that. And in part, because I'm not the smartest person in the room, there are people who are absolutely smarter than me, but what I don't think people understood they were doing, even at a young age, they were othering. They weren't saying you're so smart. Here's what, here's all the ways that I love being in connection with you. They're saying you're so smart with a tone that implied you're not like me. Mm-hmm. And that othering, even in the workplace, even in big tech, where you are encountering more people who might be on spectrum and who have other neurodivergence because these, uh, many of the roles and like engineering being a big stereotype for autism yeah, the incidence seems to be higher in these situations. And yet even in big tech, I feel othered all the time by it. Mm -hmm. And that's in part because we're not all engineers. We're not all doing the same things. And those stereotypes are still harmful because it misses the experience for so many. I mean, most of the ways that we understand autism in general today have everything to do with men. And Mm -hmm. we ignore all the women and their experience, which it's very different. And that experience is not shared widely enough. And there's more women who are on spectrum or who have ADHD and don't know it and struggle with a lot of other mental health issues because Mm -hmm. they're not recognized as even having it when they seek help. Like the othering in the workplace of, I need you to show up and be this way to, for us to have an effective team. And if you don't behave in that way, like that's really hard because that happens often, especially with people who are on spectrum, if you say something that feels too direct, too blunt, maybe too honest in a conversation at work, that scene is not okay. Mm. And yet, if you thought about it a little differently, I've been kind of playing around with this and using it in a few conversations with people and and seeing kind of how it lands. And so I'll share like one thought that I've had is, what if we decided that autism was a place that people were from. And therefore mm. a lot of those behaviors were cultural. Sure. We would suddenly have a very different relationship to, and we would suddenly expect that people would have a cultural sensitivity to say, oh, that might be a little much for me, but I understand there's a cultural difference here. Just like we do in global business working across cultures today. So I've mm. started to play with this idea of finding a way to get more belonging and more acceptance is what if I just thought of them as this being a part of their culture and how, how do I meet them where they are in the same way that I would expect others to do with me? 
Oh gosh, I love that so much. I hope you spread that much more broadly because I feel like that just creates like such an, an even playing field for folks of acceptance mm-hmm. and allowing of the beauty of difference and the beauty of of how people show up differently. It's easier for for us maybe to think about this from a cultural standpoint because we know that there's different norms of behavior and ways of being in different cultures, but I think something that that relates to for me is just like the lack of awareness and understanding of like like what does it mean to be neurodiverse? Like what what does that mm-hmm. even mean, right? And and what are the things that one might demonstrate or in, in ways that someone might behave? Um, how how does that represent differently for men for women inside the work environment outside the work environment? There's just so it seems like there's so much education needs to occur there to give people more permission uh, or give people more tools, I should say, to be able to connect with people in authentic ways. So I, I really hope that that experiment is broadly successful and like more people <laughs> take up that moniker and, and, and run with that. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, first of all, I just wanted to thank you for sharing and just share, for being so courageous to come on this podcast and talk about your own experience and just to share as publicly as you do uh, so much about what your experience is and, and to help so many other people find the help that they need. I'm kind of curious, like if you had, you know, if, if folks were curious and wanted to connect with you or if they wanted to learn more about some of the work that you're doing in the world, uh, what would be the best place for people to find you or contact you? Um, yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn, Ennis Olson. Um, I've had a number of people actually reach out through that. Um, what I like about that is it immediately puts the conversation in a professional context where we need mm-hmm. to have more of that be visible and talked about. So I love connecting with people that way. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Ennis. Anything else you'd like to add or anything you'd like to share before you uh, close out for the day? I just want to thank you for even having this podcast. Like this is how we get more of this to be talked about and understood and then can move into true belonging is to really talk about ways that we can make some of these improvements. So thank you for creating the space for these conversations to happen. Mm, It's absolutely my pleasure and my honor. So thank you so much. And thank you again for being here. Um, And we'll hopefully we'll get a chance to talk to you again sometime soon. I would love that. Thanks. All right. Thanks so much, Ennis. All right, that's a wrap for today's episode of the Needs Improvement Podcast. If our conversation resonated with you, do us a favor, share this episode with your network. We'll be back next month diving even deeper into what needs improvement in the modern workplace. Until then, take what you've learned and make your workplace a better place to be. See you soon.